watchers in the fourth dimension. It could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. But they're called your monsters. They're called us monsters. What must they be like? Rather exciting, isn't it? Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. This episode, we are diverging away from Doctor Who on television and focusing on the show's very first outing on the big screen as we discuss Doctor Who and the Daleks. For anyone unfamiliar with this, the Amicus Film Studio, which primarily specialised in horror movies and was led by Milton Subotsky and Max J. Rosenberg, bought the rights to the first Dalek story and two sequels from Terry Nation and the BBC for £500. They set about making an adaptation of that first Dalek story, and they gave it a budget of £180,000. Now, in this day and age where we're used to Marvel movies being made for a quarter of a billion dollars... That doesn't sound a lot. But if you compare this to Doctor Who on TV, the average episode costs just £2,000 to make, which means that the television equivalent of this movie costs less than 10% of the budget for this 90-minute film, which I think is ridiculous. As they were producing this, they were aiming the film very specifically at family audiences, so they didn't distribute it under the Amicus name, but as Aru. And they were actually so desperate to get the universal rating at the movies they went to the very unusual lengths of running the scripts by the censors during production and taking their recommendations on board to get that rating. And really to further that, they took the portrayal of the Doctor and tamed it down a little. They removed the more alien aspects and he was re-envisioned as an eccentric grandfather type figure. The screenplay itself was written by Milton Subotsky, who was one of the two main people behind Amicus. His script was based very heavily on Terry Nation's original television scripts, with some of the fat cut out, and they actually brought in former script editor David Whittaker to provide some work on the adaptation for which he wasn't credited. The film was directed by Gordon Fleming. Directing this and its sequel were actually his only contributions to the Doctor Who universe, and he was primarily a television director known for working on shows like The Saint and The Avengers. The music was provided by Malcolm Lockyer, who was known for both film and TV work and worked on Ten Little Indians, The Eurovision Song Contest, and The House of the Damned. In front of the camera, Doctor Who was played by renowned actor Peter Cushing, most famous for his work on both Hammer and Amicus, although many people will also know him as Grand Moth Tarkin from the Star Wars universe. Roy Castle played the comedy relief version of Ian, and he would actually go on to be more famous for presenting work than for acting. I actually have great memories of him from my childhood when he presented Record Breakers. Barbara was played by Jenny Linden, and she'd done the usual British TV circuits of The Avengers, Emergency Ward 10, The Saint, etc, etc. Finally, Susie was played by child actress Roberta Tovey, who'd continued her acting career into adulthood, and she can actually still be found on the convention scene today talking about her work on the two films. The film itself came out in late August 1965. It was released between the end of season two and before season three of the TV show started. And it was taking advantage of that wave of Dalek mania that come about with the show. We're going to work this episode more as a discussion. This was the very first time that the four of us got together in person to watch through something, so we might have some unique perspectives that we haven't had before. So guys, we finally got Doctor Who in colour. Does that work? What did you all think? There was a lot of colour. I've always been a fan of Technicolor. I love classic films with the Technicolor, especially in science fiction themes. It just looks gorgeous. I'm not taking away from the black and white, but it was a lot of fun. So I know when we sat down, we talked about the color palette at times. 
right? So they used a lot of those kind of pinky browns. Do you think that's really the palette of the time, or do you think that was a missed opportunity for something a bit more vivid? It actually reminded me, if you've ever watched a movie that was filmed during the various 3D crazes, where there's stuff that it doesn't really have to, but it's going like out of your face to show off the 3D, that's what the color palette is like in this. They're really showing off the fact that, oh, look, everything is in color. So it's it's made to intentionally be a bit more garish and eye-catching than it would be normally. Mm-hmm. I kind of tend to agree with that, especially when you looked at, one, Susan having red shoes like Dorothy, looking at the, the makeup of the dolls, going a little bit extreme there. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just kind of to show, hey, this is this is what it can look like in color. Yeah. I don't know why I'm pulling this, but I, I have this feeling of thinking about War of the Worlds, the um, old, older than 1965 film. I think it was Val Luton was the director of that, or is it Val Guest? I think it's Val Luton. I'm getting my Val early 60s directors confused. Like I said before, I'm a sucker for large and ostentatious color in early 60s, mid 60s films. A lot. Another one that was similar is uh same year it came out was Planet of the Vampires by Mario Bava, an Italian sci-fi horror film um, worth to check out also just has like shoehorns in color as much as possible i think that's the one where they actually alien pulled pretty hard yes it is the yes it is but i think i know and why we... you're seeing that in the color there's a lot of green especially yeah. when they're on the planet surface there's a lot of garish greens and i think there's a similarity there with war of the worlds yeah yeah and you were mentioning about the 3d films that were you know forcing like things just into the camera just i was thinking uh vincent price the wax museum is a perfect example of that where things are done so intentionally i think there's like a i'm not kidding a 60 second scene of a person literally just working a yo-yo yes and having it like get really close to the camera yes there is <laughs> wow obviously we'll see more color whenever we get to the end of season three because we'll do the second Dalek movie but I'll be interested once we move beyond the 60s to think back to this and as we're looking at those early TV color stories looking at the use of color and how does it compare to this and whether or not this was as effective or if the TV shows as effective so we have a complete recast of all the main characters here I want to go through each of the four main characters and really just talk about whether or not we liked the portrayal whether or not they work etc so let's Start with Peter Cushing as the Doctor. I have a very strong affinity for Peter Cushing as an actor because I have a strong love of Hammer horror films and childhood, as you mentioned, him being in Star Wars. I think that for the Doctor, he performed the character that they asked him to perform well. I think that he, Peter Cushing, is better served playing a more severe Doctor, like the Twelfth Doctor, than he is playing whatever Doctor variation you want to call this. I think he'd do better in that way, but obviously that wasn't going to happen in 1965, and especially since we've only had one doctor, so he was probably doing some sort of take off of William Hartnell's doctor. Yeah, I can see that. I don't necessarily have a problem with his doctor, as it were. The only thing I really have trouble with reconciling is the script makes his doctor do things that his doctor wouldn't do. Specifically, the oh, what there's nothing really wrong with the fluid link aspect of the plot that doesn't make sense coming from him and really should have been jettisoned as part of the rewrite process. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's something we were talking about when we watched this. Elements like that just 
didn't work with the kind of kindly eccentric grandfather and they could have found another reason for those kind of plot points ian could have broken it he broke everything else <laughs> <laughs> like our will uh, uh, yes i also think it, it's interesting because as we were watching the serials i i saw the doctor kind of go from surly old man to you know the more kind grandfather and then kind of got used to his newer characterization and then we go back to an earlier one where he was supposed to be the crotchety old man but then they had changed him to not be and they went like in a weird direction if any of that makes sense um so it was just it was just bizarre to see the changes that they made and it didn't really quite work the other thing they changed with the character is they rename him so that his name is actually Doctor Who. Oh, that was hard. Yeah. And that we also hard. have Susan Who and Barbara Who. Barbara Who. They are <laughs> their old family. And Cindy Lou Who. Which did bring up a question for me because Susan still calls him grandfather. But is, is Barbara his daughter or also his granddaughter? No, she... She called him grand. Uh, okay. Barbara called him grandfather as well. Okay, good. Yeah. And also, speaking of Cushing's portrayal, we uh, as a group noticed that I don't know if it was him trying to just do physical acting or was asked to to make him seem less imposing on the other actors. He walks like with his knees like really like you know bent and himself hunched in order to not tower over the other actors. Speaking of kind of his physical mannerisms, one thing I noticed was he really works to use up more of the screen than I think Hartnell does. So if you looked at the physicality, and maybe that's because the screen being on a, in a cinema would be a, a much wider screen, so there's more of it to play with. But did anyone else get that? I think that's just going from television to film, like you said. Yeah. You've got a much larger stage to play with, and people can actually see what you're doing a lot better. Yep. So we have Doctor Who. We have the next character we are sort of introduced to is, I guess, Susie Who. Susie is so much better than Susan in the first half. So I think that Susie's character in the first half was great. She had a lot to do. Really, it seemed like the whole movie was centered around her. Until apparently after her usefulness was done, she just kind of went into the background. You know, an interesting thing about her is I don't recall her ever having any moments of freaking out at all. She seems like she's dealing with the stress of the situation, but she doesn't ever seem overwhelmed like Susan from the TV serial. And I thought that was interesting because I don't remember a single moment. And I always thought that it was interesting with Susan from Caroline Ford her portrayal, despite being an unearthly child, seems constantly overwhelmed by things that you would think she would have had some sort of prior knowledge of or understanding that the universe is filled with strange, unusual things. But she's constantly overwhelmed by them. But our Susie here is, our Susan, seems pretty pretty much just, you know, run with, rolling with the punches. That's because little Susie Lou, who is actually written like any number of characters from any kid's adventure story you could dig up. She's excited to be there. She's not terrified. And I mean, every time she speaks, she's she's got some gumption to her. She's as far as characters that translated from TV to film. She really works. 
And I think another thing that they did with her is I know in like the first episode, they tried to show Susan being very intelligent and, you know, knowing a lot of things about the universe, but then it just seemed to go nowhere. Whereas this, whereas Susie seemed rather far ahead of her time, especially for her age. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things there is we often described Susan being a teenager who was written as an eight-year-old. And I think with Susie at times, we're getting a, an eight-year-old who's almost being written as a teenager. It's like they tried to course correct just a little too much. I wonder if that's in any connection to the trope that we've had for several years of the eight-year-old, nine-year-old, incredibly precocious and very mature beyond their age. Maybe. But overall, I personally, I was left liking her character a lot more than I ever liked Susan. It also helps when we look at some of these other characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, let's talk about Barbara who. Who? I'm so sad. <laughs> there's, there's no Barbara in this movie. I was going to say, did, did we even get to know the character? Did she do anything? <laughs> she had... What two lines? Maybe. Yeah. She she provided the plot device to to get Ian into the house. <laughs> I mean, I think right yeah. now we have already said more about her than she says or does anything in the entire movie. So moving on. <laughs> but I mean, before we talk about Ian, I mean, I I just think it's such a shame because Barbara, for all of us, as we said through her entire tenure on the TV show was such a mainstay she at times she was the hero of the show and she's just a non-entity here we don't even get the iconic cliffhanger i think i know why they did that a lot of the more tension building or scarier scenes were really written out or filmed in a completely different way so we don't get that really you know creepy cliffhanger moment instead it's replaced by the sneakiest daleks ever crowding in on all of them it's yeah. it's really just just a different thing so yeah barbara you could have removed her from the script and had ian be a, a babysitter and it it Ooh. wouldn't have mattered at all <laughs> yeah it, it's just disappointing however she was also as you mentioned the plot device to get ian in so comedy ian <laughs> <laughs> look at how they massacred my boy I like how they go from Ian supposed to supposedly the the hero, the the muscle, the you know, I'm going to save everybody to how many things can I knock over? I uh, I don't understand. Yeah, it's it was definitely disappointing. Well, and to me the other bizarre thing is that it's not even they gave the doctor those heroic moments. It's just those they didn't exist. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's that is. one thing that, is. That, that I've noticed while, while watching this, even when I had seen bits of it before, is there's a strong lack of any kind of real protagonist. They just kind of go along and, and stuff happens. And Ian breaks stuff and occasionally acts wildly out of character because it was something that was written for television, Ian. And then it's all over. To a certain degree, I think Ian is supposed to be the main character in that, you know, he's the one who's barging in on this family. He's, you know, and it follows him fairly closely. 
but he doesn't do anything, so it doesn't make sense for him to be a protagonist at all. He's just our entry into seeing them. So, I don't know. I don't know what they did. <laughs> I think the crucial thing here about Ian is, and we noticed it in which he was doing the try to stir the falls into the fight scene, and I think that is what I think you were mentioning that, Don, is that that's something where in the film, Ian gets those lines, but then fails to really deliver it compared to the television serial. Yeah, I was going to mention that during our discussion of how it works as an adaptation, because mm-hmm. you've got a character that you've established as this goofy, kind of likable klutz, but then he's also wanting to drag away the Thal woman, and it's just completely out of character for that version of Ian. So in, instead of taking the basic skeleton of the script and go, okay, we're going to make these changes to the characters. Let's see if we can make everything flow logically. It's, it's really kind of a weird cut and paste hack job. And what I noticed is that his slapstick performance and I don't know, maybe it's just my American mind connecting the two or hearing person with an accent not to say that dick van dyke's accent was good but mary poppins came out the year before this movie and i could not help just the same body shape and physical humor <laughs> just seems so identical and i just can't imagine that anthony could you answer this question for us was mary poppins the film accepted in england or did people despise it that's very racist i'm going to be offended on your behalf <laughs> <laughs> I know that Dick Van Dyke's accent has been um, ridiculed for a very long time, but I don't know if his performance or the film in general was well well received, but that's what I picked up from Ian. I was like, this is just them trying to do Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. A- Anthony? Did I, did I offend him? <laughs> Anthony? Anthony? <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> Apparently I pushed I push the button. Never speak to an Englishman about Mary Poppins, the Disney film. They'll hate you for all time. Way to go, there goes our... Yeah, I know. What the hell? There goes our podcast. Uh, We're done, guys. All right. Okay. So, Riley, I guess we start like a uh, an amicus and hammer horror podcast Yeah, I guess now. I... Welcome to the horror and amicus English horror film podcast. Uh, Don and I have just recently watched uh, The House That Drip Blood. And let's discuss it. It was wonderful. I enjoyed it greatly. I went into it not knowing it was an anthology film. I love, I mean, Amicus does anthology films. I love anthology films. Uh, that's, that's, I, there's something about it I just really enjoy. But to me, I feel like for The House of Drip Blood, the weakest part was the second story with Christopher, Christopher Lee and the witchcraft story. Really? Which is strange because I love Christopher Lee. I enjoyed that story mainly because I had a little bit of a crush on the teacher lady, but that's just me. Oh, she was <laughs> nice. I was more of a fan of the third uh, story uh, with John Pertwee and uh, Ingrid Pitt. Uh, the actors playing vampires, maybe they're, but, but one of them really is a vampire story. I thought that was kind of fun and it had a lot of humor, but um, I, I just love the performances by both those actors. It was clever, I'm- but I did wonder where the switch went, where Ingrid Pitt became a vampire. By the way, Anthony, we, we've switched to a horror movie podcast because... Yeah, you, sorry, you man. You were gone too long. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so, where were we? Um, <laughs> um, I had asked you... Oh, God, I'm going to do it again. Get ready. You were ne- Anthony, you needed to respond to Riley's <laughs> horrifically racist allegations that Ian was based on... 
Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. <laughs> oh, so I don't think so. I mean, maybe the kind of klutziness. That's what I was going for. Reminiscent of Bert from Mary Poppins, but I doubt it was deliberate. I think it was just a, you know, this movie is taking or tackling serious themes of genocide. And so let's throw in someone to at least provide some comic moments. That said, the one thing that I apparently didn't get to say before I dropped was it wasn't Ian who tried to drag off Dione. The doctor played bad cop with the Thals. Oh. I thought the doctor was doing the talking, but Ian dragged her off. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. So the, the doctor says, Ian, drag, you know, Ian, take her to the Daleks. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> and he does it. He does it. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Collaborator. himself doing it. There are some differences there, but I I think we all feel that maybe Ian is not nearly as um as well rounded as his TV counterpart. That covers our four main characters. So the next thing I wanted to touch on was how well does this work as an adaptation in general? And I'm thinking we'll look at the script, the transition to the big screen, and the music as well. So they took this seven episode long script and condensed it down to ninety minutes. Does that work? Yes, I think they got rid of a lot of slow parts. So I mean, just talk about about how condensed the going through the swamp and the caves, except they changed it from caves to a rock cliff, was so much faster. <laughs> and they didn't have that subplot of the Doctor and Susan doing something separate from everyone. It, I mean, it was slightly different and it wasn't as convoluted of an idea. So I think it cut out a lot of the filler. I agree completely. I was thinking about this after we watched it. I don't really view this as being an adaptation of Doctor Who the TV show. I view this as being an adaptation of a very specific Terry Nation script. I think that's also one of the reasons we lost pretty much the entirety of an unearthly child, so we could get to the point quicker. And as Julie was saying, a lot of the the fat from the script that's needed to have it be watched in however many 25-minute chunks gets cut away. So things, they move at a regular clip. Um... Some of the stuff doesn't work, particularly character motivations, as I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. But they were really aiming this for for a, a kid market. So it was bright and shiny, and it, it did what it set out to do, which is put the Daleks on the screen, big screen, in color. I, I think I'm in uh, complete agreement. I mean, you can't argue with the pacing. I've um, recently with... It seemed like modern in modern recent and modern times with film, uh, especially like the mid nineties, there was a big complaint about, you know, these large genre films being way too short. And it seemed like everyone was complaining about that. And now we seem to have the opposite where it's not surprising to have any sort of genre film be at minimum two and a half hours long, if not maybe hitting three hours, um, depending on your genre. But I was just thinking about, you know, Imagine having, I mean, for example, the most recent Star Wars films, uh, I think, are now clocking in at two and a half, which is amazing compared to the originals. But I agree that, yeah, it's good to have short pacing. I like that because I feel like a, a film should never, over, never overstay its welcome because it seems very presumptuous of it based on its quality to stay for two and a half hours unless it knows it's good. You know, brings you know in the editing room, bring things in and stuff, cutting them out. There were some. I feel like it moved so quickly that there were certain beats from the serial that were missing, and it was harder to build up suspense, and it was harder to maybe get 
find time to show those character motivations. And maybe in the hands of you know a better director that could have been done in the 89 minutes that this film was. But again, when the I think the intent of this, you know, they tried to downplay a lot of the more genre esque type things and make it more of a you know general audience. What what does the general audience want? They want Daleks on the screen. Um, and they did a pretty good job of that. So I think for that purpose, it actually works. If they were trying to actually do it in genre, then yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, I think they were intentionally removing a lot of the suspense. And I was going to say, the, the one thing you have to keep in mind is the original was designed to be watched over the course of seven weeks. And this was designed for someone to sit in a room for X amount of time and watch it all in one go. So I think they had to make it zippier. They had to make those cuts just because of the differences in the medium. And speaking of Daleks, I just wanted to touch on that at least once because I remember when we were watching it, um, we were commenting on the colors because you had your your black and gold Dalek, which was really cool. And then you had your like light blue Daleks and your red dogs and it's at first, it seemed the colors didn't really make sense. But then you had that one really great shot of all of them in rows, and it actually looked like it was a, you know, a system of hierarchy. And I thought that was really well done. Yeah, you, you start seeing which ones are the boss. Yeah. Let's talk about the music. Obviously, there's a much broader budget for this. I, I imagine that the composer got paid more than Tristram Carey did for the original. And if you think back to the original, it had that very kind of minimalist soundscape to it, whereas this is a lot more theatrical than orchestral. Does that work? The opening uh, title cards had a wonderful kind of jazzy swinging number like reminded me of The Chase <laughs> that I greatly enjoyed. In, in general, I, I think it worked, but it, it had a very big brass sound like you would expect from like a, a mid-60s Bond film, which. I don't know. I feel like while that is kind of playing to a, a basic sense of like action and suspense for 1965 cinema, I think for a science fiction story, maybe they could have done a, something a little kooky, something a little strange, maybe throw a little theremin in there or something. I don't know. I mean, considering that yeah. on the screen, the Daleks have lava lamps, you'd expect it to be a bit more psychedelic. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. They should have done a, a 1970s remount with Pink Floyd scoring it. Please? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think it kind of goes into, you know, what I, was, what I was talking about with making it for a more general audience as opposed to keeping it in genre. It sounded very much of its time for, you know, films of, you know, more of an act type idea. Um, even if you look at, you know, a little bit earlier, but some of the swashbuckling things with the big big brass and the big, you know, big moments uh, makes sense. Again, maybe not for Doctor Who, but given that this was less genre than normal Doctor Who, I can see why they went in that direction. And that there are definitely times where the score seems like it was made for one of those epic movies, you know, Spartacus or something like that. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking when, you know, you see them heading towards the Dalek city on the quest to get back the fluid links and end the threat of the Daleks. It feels very kind of epic. The one thing I'd like to say is that I enjoyed the music. Might not fit very well, but I enjoyed it. I think that's fair. That's very fair. (laughs) 
So we've talked about condensing it down. We've talked about the music. What about... Let's talk about how the Thals are actively worse in this than they were in the series. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm here for this. The design just... Okay, uh, the original <laughs> Thal design is pretty ridiculous. But it does have sex pants, so it's got that going for it. I miss We are big fans of that on this podcast. And here the wigs get worse. The Thals are the, <laughs> the only creatures to develop eyeliner and mascara before the wheel or fire. And they're wearing <laughs> these weird yellow and green, almost like Robin Hood, if he was a glam rocker outfits. <laughs> All I'm saying is, I understand why the Barbara in this didn't take her own fall pants with her, because just, just awful. Just their characterization in the original, while they were, you know, a little bit more pacifistic and things like that, they were still, they still seem to like get things done and have a plan. Whereas I have no idea what these guys were about. I was just sitting there. I was like, so they just exist. And okay, they're not very smart. They're just gonna, okay. At no point did where did they show any sort of gumption or anything. I did find it amusing that our suicidal Thal from the serial had his I'm okay moment. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't die. They're so incompetent they can't even die when yeah. they're meant to. <laughs> it's fine. This thing's only like five foot deep. I'm okay. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. Exactly. And can we talk about how I was so excited thinking that the women were going to, like, say something, and then I was just sorely disappointed. Oh, you poor, deluded <laughs> fool. <laughs> this is 1965. Women aren't meant to talk. You saw how many lines Barbara got, and she's top <laughs> <laughs> However, the Daleks have plenty of lines. Oh, no. Oh, they're wonderful. I, I think my personal favorite is when Barbara yells, Dalek! And that one just goes, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, wonderful. But yeah, they are very talkative. Yeah, I wish the Thals had a little bit more to say and the Daleks a little bit less to say. But yeah, we don't get that. Mm -mm. So what do we think about the overall design of it? I mean, obviously, there's a bigger budget. The sets feel bigger, they're more colourful. Is it what you would have seen if you had been taking the original and building this out yourself? Is Would this have been your vision? Can we talk about the Daleks, like, control room with the spinning controls? Yes, that's absolutely... That was awesome. The, the Bond villain room? Yes. That's absolutely part of the design conversation. That room is great. Yes. absolutely is. Probably not what... Okay... I kind of derailed our entire <laughs> conversation by the pink hallway with the um, Dalek <laughs> appendages that I may or may not have referred to as being just adapted from Glory Hole with the Daleks. <laughs> you have no proof. The conversation was not recorded. I would not have gone in that direction because, you know, I mean, come on. Salmon everywhere, really. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's bits and pieces that I like and I don't like. The control room... I thought was really well done. I thought it was brilliant. The hallways, not so much. That wasn't great. I think they did a good job of the petrified forest. Oh, very, yes. And I think it was Julie that mentioned it in the scene where they dropped something down the elevator. I liked it better when it was ancient Dalek art. Yes. Yeah, yes. instead of just a control panel. Yeah. 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 That, was, that was sad. 
The swamp wasn't as good. No, the swamp was definitely lacking. Especially yeah. the part where a Thal character, and I use that term loosely, was drowning, but <laughs> the water was completely transparent and you could see there was nobody down there. <laughs> I mean, I think this is where actually the color makes it suffer a little. That part in the original TV serial is, I think, so scary because it's in black and white and you don't really see a lot. Whereas here, because it's in color, the water is transparent. It's to Don's point, you can see that it's pretty shallow and not very threatening. Definitely suffers there. What about the TARDIS set? Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about it. It's... Busy? It's... It, it, it doesn't portray the doctor. It, it, I think they're trying to do kind of like a absent-minded professor kind of thing with him, where it's, or like, you know, forgetful creator, inventor thing. It just the TARDIS should not seem that way for the doctor. The doctor TARDIS should always seem seamless, good in design, like really, really sharp. Everything has its purpose. For that, it just it seems like he like mistakenly created. Well, which is kind of going to back to the plot of the the movie. It's that you know he created this instead of like what we have from Doctor Who canon that the TARDIS was you know those are created by the Time Lords on Gallifrey. Da 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 da. You know, so there's actually like models and like, you know, perfection and effort put into this. This is like, he's a kooky inventor in his backyard and he created this, you know, this time machine or this, you know, space and this time relative invention in the space machine. To be utterly fair, though, at this point in the show, they've actually more or less stated that the doctor built it. And while I do agree, I don't really like the design. I much prefer the, the simple, clean lines of the television show, that aesthetic of the control room looking rather cobbled together and mismatched, they've gone back to that well in Modern Who. Yeah. Which Doctor are you referring to, or which TARDIS are you referring to? Um, almost any of them in the modern era. They either have a grown aesthetic, there was a lot of that in Matt Smith's TARDIS, where you've just got sort of little random bits of junk sitting out of the central console. It's nothing as extreme as oh, well, I mean, I think that was more kind of like a Rube, even the, the, like the Rube Goldberg kind of like control panel of like, this doohickey does this. Considering how that shows up, and it shows up here, and also you have what are basically the progenitors of the new paradigm Daleks. Oh, I think that was a huge yeah, influence. Yeah, it's, it's there. And you, you look back to when the show came back in 2005, I think the key design element from the TARDIS interior that was carried from this was... The doors, the interior doors. What was it Julie said? Oh, the doors make sense now? Yes, the doors finally make sense. But I think I was problem I had problems with the string going everywhere. <laughs> I am one hundred percent behind you on that. <laughs> yeah. That just yeah. I that just made it seem like just messy, like I was like walking into like a antique mall or something. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a clean design very questionable at times but it did influence the new show i did like that that first shot when they're in their little house and it's all just like quaint and they're sitting there reading their books that was cute and the doctor's reading an adventure comic that's nice while Susie and barbara are reading hard science books for barbara to use that in the movie right yes <laughs> with her complicated and heart-wrenching <laughs> character <sighs> I miss competent Barbara. 
makes me so sad because I'm just like, Barbara is the best. And look at what they did to her. Well, clearly they couldn't replicate it, so they just decided not to try. Yeah. So I think we've touched on this in our various other discussions, but do you guys think that the movie really benefits from the much larger budget? Do you think that that was money well spent? I don't know at the time how much color cost, but I feel that if having color required the higher budget for the props and the set because it'd be seen so clearly and because it's not just it's not just the color it's because it's using film stock which you know is has a higher resolution you know than old 1963 television i was looking at for comparison like for an idea of budget for 1965 and in british productions the james bond sorry to keep going to james bond james bond filmed thunderball which came out in 1965, had a budget of $9 million. Now, granted, a lot of that was used for stunts. I feel like, you, like we said before with black and white, it allows the imagination to, to really expand. So, I don't know, maybe just to see it in color is enough. Riley took my answer because it's really based on film stock being expensive. As far as is it worth it, you would have to ask the people that made it. Did they make their money back? Yeah, and that's something I tried to see if there was any information on. And the actual box office takings don't seem to be available anywhere online. But the general comment on it is, the film opened to positive reviews and a strong box office performance, which is not overly helpful. I mean, if they said it was strong and it was a pretty low budget, I I would assume that they they made that back plus some, uh, especially because they also made a second one. So that bodes well for how they did. I mean, it's there's pros and cons uh, to it. I enjoyed some of the color pieces and how they kind of went went that direction. Again, I kind of briefly touched on there were a few kind of moments where I thought Wizard of Oz uh, with the shoes that Susie had. Plus, there's a few scenes with some of the rock face um, that reminded me of that. I thought the problems lied more in the characterization, which doesn't really tie into cost other than just rewrite of script. So I think a larger budget, it worked, but I think they just messed up some of the characterization and that was the bigger problem, not the fact that it cost more and it wasn't. Right. And Riley, to your point on how much a Bond movie cost, I think it's probably a a fairer comparison to look at hammer and amicus movies yeah i had trouble finding budget on that like i saw that i think that the movie that i actually mentioned earlier planet of the vampires an italian production was i think a hundred and ninety five thousand i don't know if that's pounds or not or dollars i have to check but in closer in that ballpark but i think what my point was just that for compared to like movies that were huge movies that was the budget so even for a film dr the daleks in 1965 would consider to be have a very low budget charles norton who wrote a book called on the big screen which is a kind of history of attempts of bringing doctor who to the big screen said that an average hammer studios film was made using a budget of 120,000 pounds and amicus's dr terror's house of horrors was made on a hundred thousand pounds so this was more expensive than any of those. And I think, you know, I've been trying to put myself in the head of someone at the time. And, you know, this is a time where we didn't have on-demand viewing through things like Netflix, BritBox, etc., 
where there was no home video. You watched it and it was done. So it's been almost two years since the original aired on TV. I I think I would have enjoyed seeing this on the big screen at, at the time. I think trying to look at it in a, in a modern context, we, we have so many technological advantages over the time that we can go back and look at the original, whereas this was the closest they were going to get. And they had to pay for the privilege. Well, I mean, this yeah. goes back to Don's point earlier about this is, we need to look at this as not necessarily a not true uh, adaptation, but a adaptation of the Tyranny Nation script. And to think about, like, you know, all those people back then, they were talking about, oh, man, did you see that Dr. Dalek episodes? Those were great. And those people hearing about it, not having a chance to see it, I don't assume they had reruns in 1963 to 65. Not really. No. no. So they're, no. so so the movie was their opportunity to see Daleks for the first time based off the word mouth of the original serial. Yeah. By this stage, they'd... You know, the Dalek invasion of Earth and the chase had both broadcast. Yeah, I, the original. Yeah, I think, especially for its time, a lot of people would be, you know, would say definitely Daleks on the big screen, absolutely worth it. And in color! So I think that more or less brings us to the end of our general discussion. So let's, let's do our usual vote on this. So this time, I believe, Don, it's your turn to vote first. I think I've said pretty much everything I really wanted to say about it. To me, most of the flaws, like Julie was just saying, they come from the script, not from the execution. Yeah, some of the colors are kind of bright and garish, but it did what it set out to do. I'm going to give it seven Dalek appendages out of ten. <laughs> All right. Julie, over to you. I've talked about it a lot. I think given that we have an understanding that, you know, they tried to downplay some of the more sci-fi aspects, um, you know, tried to take that into consideration and, you know, things like that. The major problems were characterization, not even, you know, trying to make it non, not as genre. Um, but I would still say the execution was really good. Um, you know, some characters were better. Some were worse. I really like the black and gold Daleks, so we're going to go with seven black and gold Daleks. Awesome. All right, Riley. I think this might be a record. I think we're in complete agreement on voting. It's a science fiction 1965 film in Technicolor. I love the colors. I love just the ostentationness of it. I, I mean... I, 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 any movie that, I mean, like I said, any sci-fi movie that has those type of like, that kind of style of 1965, I'm really going to enjoy. What actually tracks the movie to me is that it's what everyone else is mentioning. It's like, it's, it's not the Doctor Who that I enjoy. It's, it's like, it has elements of it. I mean, the Daleks are the Daleks, but even the Thals aren't even the Thals, and we don't have are strong characters that we had on the show. So it's fun to look at. It's a wonderful curiosity for Doctor Who fans. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely worth your watch. But uh, for I would have to give it a 7 out of 10 Peter Cushing's fake eyebrows. Come on, Anthony. You know what you must do. <laughs> you must complete the prophecy. Yes. So... I actually agree as well. For me, this this isn't so much about the plot. 
the point of this movie is the spectacle. It's about bringing this to the big screen. It's about bringing it to the audience in colour. It's about giving people more Daleks and the op opportunity to go and pay however much a cinema ticket cost in 1965 and give them the ability to go and see them again and again and again until the film stopped running, which you couldn't do with TV. And I think that this achieves its aims gloriously. Is it flawed? Yes, of course it is. But I think it does what it sets out to do. It loses some points naturally for the portrayal of the main cast, particularly sidelining Barbara and, and turning Ian into an absolute buffoon. From my perspective, this also gets a 7, and I'm going to give it 7 out of 10 citizens of the nation of Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing us back to our very second episode. So with that, we've all voted, which means we can compare our scores to the original. So Julie, you were the only one who stayed consistent. You gave the original 7 out of 10. Yay! And then the rest of us all gave the original 8 out of 10. <laughs> so this was slightly worse. Or I guess I should say slightly less good. But I think it was worth watching. We were younger and more innocent then. <laughs> exactly. We were less far along in our adventure. We were, we were bedazzled by a higher production budget and technicolor. Exactly. So, one final thought before we call it a day, and that's this movie was actually recently made canon-ish. I want to say a year or so ago, there were a bunch of novelizations of modern Doctor Who stories, one of which being Stephen Moffat's The Day of the Doctor. And in that, he included in the in Unit's Black Archive VHS cassettes of the two movies. And <laughs> the idea is that they were fictionalized versions of the Doctor's adventures in his own universe that they kind of pitched as movie ideas. So um, they're, they're pseudo-canon. So that means that in the reality and universe of Doctor Who, Peter Cushing is the only person to play the Doctor. Correct. Which is bonkers. So, with that very tenuous thought, that's just about all the time we have for this episode. We'll be back next time around as we start working our way through Season 3 of the television show with Galaxy 4 as our first item. In the meantime, our previous episodes are all available on your favourite podcasting app, you can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. Or you can even email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Never Speak to an Englishman About Mary Poppins, was recorded on Wednesday the 21st of August 2019. And always remember, if you think you're on a bad date, just keep in mind that it could be worse. You could have accidentally whisked your girlfriend and her entire family to a planet full of hostile mutants in metal casings.